Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 166, John Brown's Body. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm going to be talking about the song that motivated the Union Army to march during the Civil War. It was inspired by the most hated man in America. It borrowed the tune from an old church hymn, and it was first sung right here in the Boston Harbor Islands. This week, I'm going to dig into the double meaning behind the title of the song, its holy and profane lyrics, and the tragic history of the Hallelujah Regiment who made it famous. The 12th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry Regiment marched out of Boston in 1861 with 1,040 men and a song in their hearts. But when they returned three years later, they numbered just 85, and they had vowed never to sing their famous song again. But before we talk about the song John Brown's Body, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. For our upcoming event this week, we actually have a sneak peek at an author interview we'll be releasing in a few weeks. On January 14th, the Lexington Historical Society will host one of their periodic book group meetings, and the topic will be Massachusetts and the Woman's Suffrage Movement by Barbara Berenson. Berenson will be joining us on the podcast for an interview in a few weeks, so this might be a good way to jump in and get your feet wet with our book. The Lexington Historical Society says, This month's book will help you get up to speed on the history behind the 2020 centennial of the 19th Amendment granting women the right to vote. Massachusetts and the Woman's Suffrage Movement removes the story of suffrage from the singular mythology of Seneca Falls, deepening the movement to Worcester, Greater New England, and the far reaches of the West. Her untold histories touch upon the complicated nature of the movement made even messier by aspects of politics, class, and race. It is a discussion group, so it's probably a good idea to read the book in advance. The event will be held at the Lexington Historical Society's Depot Building at 13 Depot Square in downtown Lexington, and it'll begin at 6 p.m. on Tuesday, January 14th. Bring your book, your notes, and an appetite. Admission is $35 for non-members, but that does include a catered dinner from Nelio's in Lexington. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is a classic title, David Hackett Fisher's 1994 epic, Paul Revere's Ride. At the time it was published, it was basically the first scholarly treatment of the events of April 19, 1775, well, basically ever. Too many people were too familiar with the legend of Paul Revere's ride, and serious historians more or less ignored the reality of the event. That changed with Fisher's book. It uses primary sources to not only reconstruct the events of that fateful night in exacting detail, but also to reconstruct the world that Paul Revere lived in, both before and after his ride. Here's how the publisher describes it. In Paul Revere's ride, David Hackett Fisher fashions an exciting narrative that offers deep insight into the outbreak of the Revolution and the emergence of the American Republic. Beginning in the years before the eruption of war, Fisher illuminates the figure of Paul Revere, a man far more complex than the simple artisan and messenger of tradition. Revere ranged widely through the complex world of Boston's revolutionary movement, from organizing local mechanics to mingling with the likes of John Hancock and Samuel Adams. When the fateful night arrived, more than 60 men and women joined him on his task of alarm, an operation Revere himself helped to organize and set in motion. 
Fisher recreates Revere's capture that night, showing how it had an important impact on the events that followed. He had an uncanny gift for being at the center of events, and the author follows him to Lexington Green, setting the stage for a fresh interpretation of the battle that began the war. Drawing on intensive new research, Fisher reveals a clash very different from both patriotic and iconoclastic myths. The local militia were elaborately organized and intelligently led, in a manner that had deep roots in New England. On the morning of April 19th, they fought in fixed positions in close formation, twice breaking the British regulars. In the afternoon, the American officers switched tactics, forging a ring of fire around the retreating enemy, which they maintained for several hours, an extraordinary feat of combat leadership. In the days that followed, Paul Revere led a new battle, for public opinion, which proved even more decisive than the fighting itself. We used Fisher's book as a source for episode 66, about Paul Revere's other rides around Massachusetts and New England. We'll have a link for you to purchase the book, as well as a link to more information on the discussion of Massachusetts and the Women's Suffrage Movement in Lexington in this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 166. Before I move on with the show, I just want to take a second and thank everyone who sponsors Hub History on Patreon. Over the past year, you've allowed us to start breaking even on the cost of making the show, as well as enabling us to start providing transcripts with each episode. Plus, we finally got the show listed in Spotify, which is the fastest-growing podcast app. With your help, we hope to keep making, growing, and improving the podcast well into the future. If you're not supporting the show yet and you'd like to, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support link. And now it's time for this week's main topic. In 1879, a Mr. N. Lincoln of Cambridgeport wrote a letter to the editors of the National Journal of Education describing a scene he had witnessed in the spring of 1861, when soldiers from the 12th Webster Regiment prepared to parade across Boston Common. I happened to be in Tremont Street toward sunset of a mild and pleasant evening, when these soldiers awaiting orders to embark for the fort were standing under the elms in the Park Street Mall, leaning upon their muskets. As I passed along the line, someone struck up the song John Brown's Body. It was taken up in chorus by the whole troop, and the drums and trumpets for aught I know, with a crowd of lookers-on swelled the refrain, Glory Hallelujah. A thrill passed through me nor was I alone in that respect, such as I had never felt before, and which, in the light of subsequent events, I cannot but regard as prophetic of that consummation so devoutly to be wished, which came, at least in the fullness of time. The influence of that song in molding public sentiment and directing men's minds to the real point at issue in the matter, who can measure? And here, with some variations from the original, may be repeated the words of old Andrew Fletcher, let me be permitted to write all the songs of a nation, and I care not who makes its laws. Though it's since been eclipsed by the Battle Hymn of the Republic in popular memory, that song, John Brown's Body, was by far the most popular of the Union Army and the loyal states during the Civil War years. In Battle Hymns, The Power and Popularity of Music in the Civil War, Christian McWhorter describes its wide influence. 
During the Civil War, John Brown's body was the Union's national hymn. It enjoyed incredible popularity, especially among soldiers. In June of 1862, the Continental Monthly remarked that the song was among the most striking of those produced by the war and was extensively sung in the Army. It was unquestionably the most beloved song in the Army of the Potomac, and its only competitor in the Western armies was George Frederick Root's The Battle Cry of Freedom. One Union veteran recalled how it seized upon every blue-coated organization throughout the land with fascinating power. In the Army of the Potomac, it was heard almost constantly. When the armies in blue began singing about his body, it had only been about 16 months since radical abolitionist John Brown was hanged in Virginia. On the morning of his execution, he wrote, I am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away but with blood. Now that bloody civil war he'd foreseen was beginning, but Brown had been a lifelong radical. Even as early as the 1820s, he'd operated a stop on the Underground Railroad out of the tannery his family ran in northwestern Pennsylvania, personally helping as many as 2,500 enslaved African Americans make their way to freedom in Canada. In the 1840s, he lived in Springfield, Mass., and rubbed shoulders with abolitionists like Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass, and he became even more radicalized. It was his actions in the 1850s, however, that would make John Brown famous and make his name one of the most reviled in the American South. The 1854 Kansas-Nebraska Act created two new U.S. territories, and it mandated that a majority vote in each would determine whether they would be admitted to the Union as slave or free states. Soon, a guerrilla war broke out in Kansas, with settlers from both sides rushing into the territory, claiming land, and using violence to try to drive the other side out. In early 1856, John Brown moved to Kansas, joining five of his sons on a homestead there. After slavers sacked the town of Lawrence on May 21st, Brown led a loosely organized militia to a pro-slavery settlement on Pottawatomi Creek. Late at night, on May 24th, Brown's company forced its way into three farmhouses, dragging all the adult men they found out into the night. A total of five men were killed, hacked to death with broadswords, with John Brown shooting at least one man in the head to make sure he was dead. With the massacre, violence in Kansas spiraled out of control, with revenge killings and raids escalating into a bloody, undeclared war. In the coming months, John Brown would be involved in two pitched battles in defense of free state settlements, killing at least 20 more slavers. After a new governor negotiated a temporary peace, John Brown left Kansas. Now famous, but a pariah in polite abolitionist circles, Brown would make his way to New England to plan what would be the final chapter in his life. In 1857, John Brown came to Boston where he met many influential abolitionists and wealthy merchants. Over the course of the next year or two, he started to raise funds and gather supplies. When he began putting in orders for things like 200 Sharps rifles and 1,000 pikes, people began to realize that John Brown was up to something. In Boston, a group that would become known as the Secret Six used their money and influence to help move the plan forward. They were Thomas Wentworth Higginson, Theodore Parker, George Luther Stearns, Franklin Benjamin Sanborn, Garrett Smith, and Julia Ward Howe's husband, Samuel Gridley Howe. 
Finally, it was time for the main event, the famous October 1859 raid on Harper's Ferry in what's now West Virginia. With only 21 men, John Brown planned to take over a federal armory and use the weapons they liberated to start a slave rebellion in the surrounding plantations in Virginia and Maryland, which Brown then hoped would spread across the South. Everything went wrong right from the start. Despite cutting the telegraph lines, word of the raid quickly spread. Before long, local militia had the armory surrounded, and Brown's meager force was taking casualties. By the end of the second day, ten of his men were dead, including two of his sons. Seven more were captured by U.S. Marines, led by Robert E. Lee. John Brown would be charged with treason, murder, and conspiring to cause a slave rebellion. On November 2nd, he was found guilty on all charges. And on December 2nd, he was hanged. Among the crowd of onlookers were Walt Whitman, Stonewall Jackson, and John Wilkes Booth. How did the horrifying, tragic, scandalous story of the zealot John Brown become an army marching song and the unofficial anthem of the United States? In their book, The Battle Hymn of the Republic, a biography of the song that marches on, John Stauffer and Benjamin Soskis introduce us to the military unit that could boast of originating a song that would sweep the nation within just a few months. In the heady days after the fall of Fort Sumter in April 1861, Boston men rushed to join the handful of existing military units, and one of the more popular was the 2nd Battalion Light Infantry. The Tigers, as the unit was popularly known, could trace its lineage back to a company established in 1784, and had been maintained since then largely for social and ceremonial purposes. Recruits from the city's upper tier, students, clerks, merchants, and professional men, quickly flooded its ranks, giving it an early reputation for attracting kid-gloved soldiers. On April 29, 1861, Governor John Andrew ordered the battalion, under the command of Major Ralph W. Newton, to garrison Fort Warren in Boston Harbor. Construction of the fort had begun in the 1830s, but had been left uncompleted. Today, Fort Warren is a popular weekend destination, just a short ferry ride away from Long Wharf for the Hingham Shipyard in the summer and fall months. Later in the war, Fort Warren would be an important prison camp, where Confederate politicians and officers were held alongside pro-secession politicians from border states. You can hear more about that in episode 51. However, in 1861, Fort Warren was a half-finished heap. In an 1889 edition of the New England magazine, Tiger Battalion veteran George Kimball describes the condition of the fort when the 2nd Battalion arrived on George's Island in the spring of 1861. We found the great fortress in a wretched state, very much as its builders had left it, with huge piles of earth, brick, and stone encumbering its broad parade ground and filling many of its casemates. Immediately upon our arrival, we went to work with the will to place it in proper condition for military occupation. This involved a great deal of hard labor, which, the young men of the battalion being mainly of good social standing, was in strange contrast to former employments. With so much heavy labor required to get the fort looking ship-shape, the Tiger Battalion relied on music to help the long, hard days pass a little quicker. Kimball described the company's musicality. We had many good singers among us, and nothing so effectually drives away weariness, particularly among soldiers and sailors, as a cheerful spirit and a joyous song. 
We constantly worked under the inspiration of these blessed agencies. We lustily sang all the popular songs of the day, whether wielding the shovel, swinging the pick, trundling the wheelbarrow, or rolling the heavy stones away. During our long evenings and quarters, too, we sang almost constantly. In Battle Hymns, Christian McWhirter writes, On April 29, 1861, the 2nd Massachusetts Infantry Battalion was assigned to Fort Warren in Boston Harbor. A few days after arriving, four of its members formed a quartet, a glee club in the parlance of the day. One of the singers was a Scottish sergeant named John Brown, a favorite among the men for his strongly accented rendering of the sentimental ballad, Annie Laurie. As an aside, it seems incredibly innocent in retrospect for a unit that would soon see heavy action at legendary battles like Bull Run and Antietam to have invested time and effort into something as frivolous as a glee club. It shows both the power of music and how quickly the peacetime military had to transform itself after the attack on Fort Sumter. George Kimball would serve in Company A of the 12th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry alongside Sergeant Brown, and he wrote this description of his friend and the teasing his friend endured thanks to his famous name. We had a jovial Scotchman at the battalion named John Brown. He was among the leading spirits, foremost always in fun-making. And, as he happened to bear the identical name of the old hero of Harper's Ferry, he became at once the butt of his comrades. A great deal of pleasantry was indulged in at his expense, and he was often guyed unmercifully. If he made his appearance a few minutes late among the working squad, or was a little tardy in falling into the company line, he was sure to be greeted with such an expression as, Come, old fellow, you ought to be at it if you're going to help us free the slaves. Or, This can't be John Brown. Why, John Brown's dead. And then some wag would add in a solemn, drawling tone as if it were his purpose to give particular emphasis to the fact that John Brown was really, actually dead. Yes, yes, poor old John Brown is dead. His body lies moldering in the grave. Kimball continues, This nonsense was kept up from day to day, and these expressions, particularly the ones referring to the defunct condition of Brown, were so often heard that they became bywords among us, and were repeated at all times and in all places, whether our Scotch friend with the suggestive name was within hearing or not. They were usually followed by exclamations of feigned surprise, such as, Oh, is that so? It's lucky that Brown was a good sport about this teasing, because he'd soon contribute his name and reputation to a new musical craze. Sergeant Brown and the rest of the Tiger Battalion Glee Club sang old marching songs. They sang the popular music of the day, and they sang hymns. Among the hymns that was popular in 1861 was a song called Say, brothers, will you meet us on Canaan's happy shore? Say, brothers, will you meet us? Say, brothers, will you meet us on Canaan? It had a familiar tune, verses each made up of a single line repeated three times, and a chorus of Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. That was Stephen Griffith's version of Say Brothers Will You Meet Us, which he's kind enough to make available under a Creative Commons license. In The Battle Hymn of the Republic, a biography of the song that marches on, Stauffer and Soskis discuss how the Battalion Glee Club ended up adopting and then adapting the old tent revival hymn. 
Years later, when members of the singing group recalled the origins of John Brown's body, they offered various explanations for how the Methodist hymn came to their attention. Some claimed it appeared in a popular hymnal, the Melodeon, numerous copies of which were either peddled by the book's publisher or donated by a local Young Men's Christian Association. Other veterans of the 2nd Battalion claimed that members of the singing group, including Brown himself, had heard the hymn years before at camp meetings. One contemporary Bostonian dismissed these accounts. Anyone who lived in the city during the war, he wrote, would have heard the hymn at least once a day. It was a favorite of students who were much given to street singing, especially at night. The men of the Tiger Battalion took a strong liking to Say Brothers Williamitas. It had a good cadence for marching. It was easy to remember the words, and perhaps best of all, it seemed to be endlessly malleable. Anyone could think up a new repeated line that fit the rhythm of the tune, allowing the old tent revival hymn to be transformed into new versions that were humorous, sentimental, or downright profane. Stoffer and Soskis describe how the regiment's own Sergeant John Brown ended up inspiring three verses to the marching song that would soon take the Union Army by storm, and by the end of the war would be considered an unofficial national anthem of the United States. Eventually, the good-natured taunting of Brown made its way into the group's choral program. On one particularly frolicsome night, when soldiers began marching around the parade grounds after dinner, James E. Greenleaf, an occasional member of the choral group as well as the organist in a nearby church, grafted one of the more popular lines that had emerged from the ribbing of the Scotsman. John Brown's body lies moldering in the grave, his soul's marching on, onto the Say Brothers tune. The line stuck, in part because it reiterated the joke's basic premise, the incongruity between the two Browns, the dead abolitionist and the living soldier. Over the next few weeks, the song expanded with improvisations. After each stanza, which ended with some variation of his soul's marching on, the singers added the Glory, Glory, Hallelujah chorus, taken from Say Brothers. In one verse, they continued to work the theme of the merging of the two John Browns. He's gone to be a soldier in the army of the Lord. In another, they continued their teasing of the living Brown, based on a humorous incident from their first weeks at the fort. On the day knapsacks were issued and the men were given their first lessons in packing them, Brown, squat and determined, appeared before his fellow soldiers with his pack looming over him. Someone called out, Say, knapsack, where are you going with that man? Another cautioned Brown that he wouldn't make it very far south with such a load. Brown, somewhat exasperated, shouted back, John Brown's knapsack is strapped upon his back and his soul marches on as far as any of you lot. That retort was incorporated into the song as the line, John Brown's knapsack is strapped upon his back. Kimball recalls how the new marching song, John Brown's Body, was first heard by someone other than the Tiger Battalion. Less than a month after his unit arrived at Fort Warren, they learned that another, larger unit would be replacing them. The 12th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry Regiment, known at first as the Webster Regiment, was commanded by Colonel Fletcher Webster, son of the late Senator Daniel Webster. Later in the war, Webster would be killed in the Second Battle of Bull Run, and the regiment would suffer losses of two-thirds or more at Antietam. But in May of 1861, they were still learning how to be soldiers. From mid-May to late July of 1861, the 12th Regiment trained and drilled nonstop at Fort Warren, 
practicing the close-order drills that would earn them a reputation as a top unit. On May 25th, the Tiger Battalion was dismissed, with its members either joining up with the 12th or returning to Boston for other duties. But first, there was a famous flag-raising ceremony on May 12th, welcoming the new unit to George's Island and Fort Warren. Kimball said, One Sunday evening, the regiment and battalion formed for a joint dress parade. Quite a number of guests were present, and no effort was spared to make the affair notable. The brigade band came to play for us that day, and when the musicians wheeled at the left of the long line and started toward the right in quick time, they struck up the John Brown song. We were very much surprised as well as pleased, for we did not know that the musicians were learning it. This was the first time that the music of the song was played by a military band. Stoffer and Soskis expand on the role played by these outside bands. The song caught the ears of members of two professional bands that regularly played at the fort for the soldiers' entertainment, Gilmore's Band and the Brockton Brigade Band. James Greenleaf whistled the tune to a member of the Brockton Band, which gave the first public performance of the song at a flag-raising ceremony on May 12th. After hearing the men singing the song, the leader of Gilmore's band, Patrick Sarsfield Gilmore, who would go on to become the nation's preeminent bandmaster, asked the choral group quartet to teach it to him so he could incorporate it into his band's repertory. One night, the members of the singing group retired with Gilmore to a corner of the fort and performed the song, while Gilmore tooted along on a cornet and scribbled notes until he had enough to write out a proper score. He then began playing John Brown's Body at Boston events. Patrick Gilmore, I should mention, has been featured on the podcast before. Back in episode 102, we discussed the Grand Peace Jubilees held in Boston in 1869 and 1872. Held in a specially built coliseum that was one of the largest buildings in the world at the time, these musical extravaganzas were truly spectacular. To give you a sense of the scale, the climax of the 1869 show came with a rendition of Verdi's Anvil Chorus that was sung by a chorus of 10,000 vocalists, who were backed by a 1,000 instrumentalists, a battery of cannons, a convocation of church bells, a custom-made bass drum eight feet in diameter, the world's largest pipe organ, and a company of 100 Boston firefighters carrying sledgehammers and pounding anvils in unison. One account says that an audience member was so overwhelmed by the experience that he ran to the lobby and sent a telegram to his wife saying, Come immediately. We'll sacrifice anything to have you here. Nothing like it in a lifetime. The Grand Peace Jubilee and the vast coliseum that housed it were the brainchild of Patrick Gilmore. Gilmore was a native of Ireland who started playing cornet in a brass band as a teenager. He moved first to Canada and then to the U.S., serving in military bands in both. During the Civil War, he served with the 24th Massachusetts Infantry, and developed a taste for extravagant musical performances after putting one together during the Union occupation of New Orleans. After the war, he'd put this taste for large-scale performances to work, orchestrating Boston's annual July 4th celebration, and later, the Jubilees. Today, Patrick Gilmore is probably best known for writing the song When Johnny Comes Marching Home Again in 1863. But two years before that, he was instrumental in getting the new song John Brown's Body published. Gilmore's transcription of the song that the marching soldiers had learned by ear into musical notation 
meant that before long, many different publishers were selling sheet music of John Brown's body. Whether they gave credit or not, all these variations were musically similar and owed a debt to Gilmore. Lyrically, however, they were all over the place, with new verses invented all the time. I've seen, His pet lambs will meet him on the way and they'll go marching on. Now for the union, let's give three rousing cheers and we go marching on. John Brown died on a scaffold for the slave and freedom reigns today, and many more variants. There are also NSFW versions like this reference to Jefferson Davis, the so-called president of the Confederacy. We'll feed him sour apples till he has the diarrhea. Because so many people found the scatological reference objectionable, some other wag created a version where the Jeff Davis reference was merely a lynching, singing, Ironic, the diarrhea was considered more offensive than a lynching. Still, that last version would prove to be the most popular among the rank and file, who were eager for a quick victory over the South. Even as the song's popularity grew within the ranks of the military with every newly improvised verse, sheet music publishers in Boston and beyond realized that they were sitting on a gold mine. Stoffer and Soskis described the rush to copyright and publish versions of John Brown's body in the weeks and months after the public got wind of this new hit single. The song quickly overran Fort Warren's walls. In July, an advertisement from a Boston music publishing firm for a printing of Glory Hallelujah announced, At this time, one can hardly walk on the streets for five minutes without hearing it whistled or hummed. In the first months of the war, a lack of major military operations meant that most units set up for considerable stretches of a time near major cities and towns, integrating the civilian and military populations and allowing popular songs to make their way back and forth between the parlor rooms and military camps. Greenleaf had earlier facilitated this exchange. He requested that C.S. Hall, a Boston associate with strong abolitionist views, assist him in printing a version of the song. Hall sifted through the dozens of verses that had been improvised and selected five, adding one of his own composition. Sometime in late May or early June, Hall published the John Brown song as a penny ballad on thin paper with a filigreed black border and the six verses, interspersed with the glory Halle Hallelujah chorus. In future versions of the song, the middle Halle transformed into another glory. The sheet quickly sold out. In mid-July, Hall published a sturdier, full-sheet version of the song, complete with words and music, arranged by C.B. Marsh, a well-known local musician, which announced Fort Warren as the song's origin. Music publishers in the city smelled a hit. Just over a week after Hall copyrighted the music on July 16th, the same Boston court clerk issued three other publishers' copyrights on the same song. Within a year, numerous other Boston music publishers had issued their own versions of the song, as did publishers in New York, Philadelphia, Cincinnati, Chicago, Rochester, Cleveland, and San Francisco. Boyd Stutler, a collector who's conducted the most exhaustive research into the song's origins, counted 65 separate pieces of sheet music based on the John Brown's Body tune published during the war, as well as innumerable penny song sheets. 
the prompt publication of so many versions of Gilmore's sheet music was one factor. But the main thing that turned a marching song into a viral earworm was the direct exposure of the public to enthusiastic performances by the 12th Massachusetts Regiment. They would sing it on the march, first in Boston, then in other major cities. Kimball recalls, On the 18th of July, the Webster Regiment visited the city for a grand field day and review upon Boston Common. The 2nd Battalion met us at the wharf, headed by Gilmore's band. And while marching up State Street, the musicians struck up the John Brown song, and every man in the long line joined heartily in singing it. The scene was grand and enlivening in the extreme. This was the first time it was sung upon the street by an organized body of soldiers. July 23rd, the Webster Regiment left for the front, and we sang the song on our way to the railroad station, accompanied by our own regimental band, creating great popular furor. In New York City on the following day, we sang it again, and it's no exaggeration to say that the thousands of people who lined Broadway were fairly electrified by its stirring strains, heard by them then for the first time. The New York Herald of the next morning described it as a peculiar but inspiring song, and said that it was poured forth in a grand volume of melody that was almost startling, taking the thousands of charmed listeners by storm. Once the 12th Massachusetts was on the road, their song spread like wildfire. One of the places it spread to was Washington, D.C., where vast Union forces transformed the city into a fortified capital, walled and trenched against the Confederate threat right across the Potomac. Because so many troops were stationed in and around an easily accessible city, D.C. was a popular destination for dignitaries who wanted to get a taste of the military life. In November 1861, one of those visitors was Julia Ward Howe, a prominent New England abolitionist poet and writer. During her visit to Washington, Howe had an audience with President Lincoln, and she attended a review of the troops in the outskirts of the city. As she watched, soldiers of the 6th Wisconsin Volunteers paraded by singing John Brown's body. Howe and her companions, as devout Unitarians, would have likely recognized the tune as an old revival song. However, they must have been scandalized by the body lyrics. James Freeman Clark, a theologian in her group, suggested that Howe the poet come up with new, more dignified, and appropriate lyrics for the tune. On November 18th, Six months after the first public performance of John Brown's body, Julia Ward Howe woke up suddenly in her D.C. hotel and grabbed a pencil. She would later say, I went to bed that night as usual and slept, according to my want, quite soundly. I awoke in the gray of the morning twilight, and as I lay waiting for the dawn, the long lines of the desired poem began to twine themselves in my mind. Having thought out all the stanzas, I said to myself, I must get up and write these verses down, lest I fall asleep again and forget them. So with a sudden effort, I sprang out of bed and found in the dimness an old stump of a pencil, which I remember to have used the day before. I scrawled the verses almost without looking at the paper. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is tramping out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightnings of his terrible whip sword. His truth is marching on. Those verses would become the Battle Hymn of the Republic. They were first published on the front page of the Atlantic Monthly in February 1862. 
For religiously inspired abolitionists, they were preferable to the soldier's marching song of John Brown. The hymn had become a march, and now it would become a hymn again, with overtly Christian lyrics drawing parallels between the current Civil War and the Second Coming. Julia Ward Howe's version would become popular late in the war and in the decade after the war. But in the first months of the conflict, the original John Brown's body reigned supreme. While many listeners were charmed, many more were offended. Critics around the country were triggered by the lionization of John Brown. He was still seen as a dangerous radical, possibly a madman, and a divisive, controversial figure. What's more, the political and military leadership of the United States were still maintaining that the war was being fought to preserve the Union, and they denied that abolition had anything to do with it. Then the columns in blue would go marching through town singing about the scariest abolitionist of them all, and it was tough to maintain plausible deniability. A newspaper called the Springfield Republican published a story about witnessing a unit singing John Brown's body that was reprinted throughout the North, and even as far afield as Honolulu. There's probably no great significance in the fact, but it is at least a curious one, that the favorite song of the New Volunteers is a Negro doggerel in which John Brown is glorified as living in spirit in this campaign. Even the Webster Regiment, the pet corps of Boston conservatism, sung it in their march through State Street the other day. It is a queer medley, but the soldiers like it, and sing it with great energy to an old camp-meeting melody. The Virginians will think John Brown is worshipped as the northern hero, in spite of all denials, if our Boston troops sing such a song as this. So on all hands, Providence seems to be involving slavery with the war, notwithstanding the most sincere efforts of patriotism and statesmanship to keep the constitutional lines distinct. Another critical article originated with the Boston Courier a few weeks after that first march in Boston. This one wasn't as widely published as the one in the Springfield Republican, but it was at least as critical, along both religious and anti-abolitionist lines. There have been several allusions in the papers to a certain Hallelujah Chorus, sung by soldiers and others, among patriotic songs. With mortification, which we trust has also some shade of patriotism about it, we have just seen a copy of this dreary composition. One reads it with much the same sort of feeling that would overtake him if he found himself quartered in a mess that ate their dinner with dirty fingers and went drunk to prayers. This wicked nonsense has been put forth with eager and unqualified praise by that religious journal, the New York Independent, which professes to be put in trust with the pure and lofty gospel of Christ. Not only so, it has been published with music to match on a small card— and is extensively circulated in our army by men of Christian professions. It goes along with Bibles and tracts, among counsels and warnings and consolations meant to confirm the faith, to arouse the conscience, to chasten the spirit of tempted men exposed to peril and immediate death. Eventually, the unit would take its favorite song to the South. They would march through Harper's Ferry, where John Brown's insurrection sputtered and failed, singing about his soul marching on. In an astonishing display, the 12th Massachusetts passed through Charlestown, Virginia, now West Virginia, on March 1, 1862. They paused and formed up in square ranks around the Jefferson County gallows, where old John Brown had been hanged three years before, and gave a rousing chorus of their trademark song. 
Massive public performances as the 12th Massachusetts was on the march in Boston, New York, and Baltimore helped popularize John Brown's body, and it earned the 12th Massachusetts volunteers the nickname the Hallelujah Regiment. But it was a battle a year into the war that cemented the song's place as the unofficial anthem of the United States. McWhorter writes, By the beginning of 1862, the song was not yet the most popular among soldiers. One veteran recalled that it was the siege of Yorktown that cemented its status. On April 5, 1862, several regiments were facing the Confederate entrenchments, exhausted after marching in the rain and under heavy artillery fire. The men soon found their spirits lifted when the 13th New York struck up John Brown's body, and the song spread through the whole army. By singing, the wearied forms grew erect, and beneath the bursting shells and to the accompaniment of the deep double bass of cannon, the ranks cadencing their steps to the inspiring melody, debauched upon the plain, deployed, and were arrayed to face the foe. Inspired to battle by John Brown's body, it became the marching song of the army almost from that day. And now, wedded to the Army of the Potomac, it remained the leading soldier anthem until the end of the war. Even as the Union Army was adopting John Brown's body as its standard, the unit that had popularized the tune suffered a series of tragedies, and they vowed never to sing it again. Stoffer and Soskis relate the first of these misfortunes. It is a sad irony that just as John Brown's body reached the peak of its popularity among the troops, the men of the Hallelujah Regiment lost their zeal for singing it. On June 6, 1862, outside Fort Royal, Virginia, Sergeant John Brown and some other soldiers crossed the Shenandoah River to serve on picket duty. When the bridge that the men had used washed away, they boarded a hastily constructed raft to return to camp and avoid capture. But the flimsy craft disintegrated, and Brown drowned. The stout, good-hearted Scottish sergeant with the oversized knapsack was no more. With Sergeant Brown's death, his fellow soldiers may have felt a cooling toward the song he inspired. But after the unit's misfortune over the next few months, their affection for the song was gone. First, their popular commander was killed in August of 1862, which their regimental history calls a loss that was never forgotten. In his 1899 Stories of Great National Songs, Nicholas Smith describes that the 12th Massachusetts, commanded by Colonel Webster, had made the song of John Brown popular in the army. They always sang it with mighty unction. The colonel was killed in the Second Battle of Bull Run, August 30th, 1862. And there is pathos in the story that after the tragedy of that day, the regiment never again sang of old John Brown. Then, after the Battle of Antietam Creek in Maryland on September 17th, the regiment itself would never be the same. The regimental history says, The zip of the rifle balls, grown more frequent, a terrible musketry fire opens on us, and the air seems full of leaden missiles. Rifles are shot to pieces in the hands of the soldiers. Canteens and haversacks are riddled with bullets. The dead and wounded go down in scores. The smoke and fog lift, and almost at our feet, concealed in a hollow behind a demolished fence, lies a rebel brigade pouring into our ranks the most deadly fire of the war. For three hours we stood this terrible fire, and when we were relieved, our color guard were all killed or wounded. The 12th entered the battle with 340 men. It came out with 32 under its colors. 
When the 12th's term of enlistment expired in July of 1864, the regiment returned to Boston. When they left for the front in 1861, the regiment marched to the Boston waterfront singing John Brown's body with a chorus of 1,040 soldierly voices. On their return to Boston in 1864, 85 battered survivors formed up in front of the State House. The men of the 12th were remembered as the originators of the John Brown song, but no matter how much the cheering crowds urged them on, they refused to sing. Smith says, The waste of disease and the shot and shell of many battles made frightful mortality among the men, and the sad remnant of the once famous regiment made the homeward march through the streets of Boston with only 85 men. The colors were tattered. The boys stood in mournful evidence of hard service. And while they received a royal welcome by a vast patriotic multitude, and shout after shout went up for John Brown's body, these brave heroes, silently, but with a soldierly tread, marched to the barracks, and the Websters, having finished their work, passed into history. To learn more about John Brown's body, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 166. We'll have links to George Kimball's account of the song's origin, N. Lincoln's experience of a public performance in Boston, a songbook that includes a half-dozen versions of the lyrics, and newspaper articles critical of lionizing John Brown. We'll also link to The Battle Hymn of the Republic, a biography of the song that marches on by John Stauffer and Benjamin Soskis, Battle Hymns, The Power and Popularity of Music in the Civil War by Christian McWhirter, and Stories of Great National Songs by Nicholas Smith. And just for good measure, we'll throw in regimental histories of the 2nd Tiger Battalion and the 12th Hallelujah Regiment. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and Paul Revere's Ride, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. And if you do, drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. We'll be back next week to interview Russ Lopez about the LGBTQ history of Boston. 